You're listening to Software Unscripted. I'm your host, Richard Feldman. On today's episode, I'm talking with Rob Napier, an expert Swift and Objective-C developer, about Swift's unusual approach to handling Unicode strings in its standard library. This leads into a conversation about API design in general, which takes a turn into functions with the equivalent of built-in biohazard warning labels right in their names. And now, Swift and Unicode API design. All right, Rob, thank you so much for joining me. Love it, love it. Great to see you again. It's been, uh, what, probably two years? I think, yeah, it might have even been pre-pandemic. Yeah, I think it was Philly ETE 2019, probably. It is. Wow. The pandemic timeline is just wild. With <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it started, what, like six months ago? Or perhaps 20 years, I'm not sure which. Right, I saw someone make the joke. It's like, today is March 1290th, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> so you're big into Swift, Objective-C, like, I guess more Swift than Objective-C for sure these days. Oh, uh, well, these days maybe, but uh, my, my background is definitely Objective-C. But uh, so one of the things that, that I really admire about Swift is I've been, you know, making this programming language and I've been looking around at how different languages represent strings because I've seen a lot of like production bugs having to do with weird Unicode edge cases. And I have to say that of all the languages I've looked at, even though I haven't personally ever programmed in it, Swift's handling of strings seems like the best I've ever seen as far as like an API that is minimally error prone. Like if you don't really know all the details about Unicode, it seems like it would prevent you from shooting yourself in the foot in the common ways that that most standard libraries let you shoot yourself in the foot and like fall into, you know, <laughs> pits of failure <laughs> instead of pits of success. I'm looking at you, Rune, out of Go. Oh, good grief. <laughs> yeah, I also have not programmed in Go, but yeah, I, I'm aware of their handling of that, and I don't agree with it, shall we say. <laughs> but I'd, I'd be love to hear your experience, because I'm assuming that Objective-C didn't have that same string API, and so... It had... It was halfway there. Okay. Objective-C was was kind of a middle ground before between what, what Swift eventually... Between the C world, which is what most people do, which is just a bag of bytes... Right. Despite, yeah, what could go wrong? What could go wrong? <laughs> and Swift. I will say Swift's strings are both the most amazing and powerful string API possibly ever put in a language. And also the biggest frustration to certainly new programmers and to almost anyone who does low level work of any string API ever developed. So why is that? So the main problem with and glory of strings in Swift is that they are correct. <laughs> a huge amount of time you don't care. Or you think, the number one thing is people think they don't care until they suddenly care, right? They're like, oh, I don't care. It's just text. It's like, so no emojis? Oh, well, you know, English and emojis. It's like, you just said, you just mumbled all of Unicode. Like, English and emojis. Chinese is free. Everything is free. Emojis are the hardest thing you could possibly do. But on the other hand, if you seriously mean I want 7-bit ASCII, I am talking a BLE, I've done this Bluetooth, you know, protocols where it is an ASCII protocol and it literally is 7-bit ASCII, cannot have anything outside of it, then Swift strings bite you constantly because they're like, well, but maybe, and there's no way to say no. So it forces you to handle situations that you know can't come up with a protocol like that. That said, I will say that even in my absolutely positively is always 7-bit ASCII 
uh, code that I would send to Bluetooth devices. Oh, except that names sometimes could have Unicode in them. And that's, you see, that's what strings are all about. Is like, you think you have this perfect clean system until you don't. I mean, even if you like seven bit ASCII, right? It's like the numbers zero to 127 are defined. And then if you get, you know, an eight bit number and it's over 127, it's like, well, you shouldn't have gotten that, right? Yeah, it is. That's an invalid character and you just reject it. Yeah. But so you still do need some sort of parsing and validation. It's not as complicated as like UTF-8, but, you know, it's like you can still, even in that world, <laughs> still get invalid characters. And there is no uniform structure once you go above 7-bit ASCII. Everything is just out there. Right, because weren't there a bunch of different languages that were like, oh, well, these you know, 128 to 255 are not defined, so we can use that to put in like our characters for Japanese or Korean. Or, oh, yeah. 100%. Well, more European languages, that's the whole uh, Latin 1 space, but there are a ton of them. So Latin 1 is just one of many they're all called extended ASCII. And there's tons of them, and they all have different ideas of what the other characters should be. But it's important to know, even 7-bit ASCII was never meant to be a universal standard, ever. There's a reason why the first letter is American. <laughs> American standard code for information interchange, right? And so there's another one called Yuski. It's the Yugoslav standard code for information interchange. I've never heard of that. There's a Canadian one. Actually, there's two Canadian ones. There's a ton of these that are all, and ASCII was built from the day, from day one. The idea was that most of the characters would be nailed down, but there would be a few characters that you were allowed to swap in national letters. They were uh, national code points. And that, of course, turned out to not be really enough. And people started doing extended ASCII. They had this whole extra 8th bit once we kind of went to 8-bit bytes with the uh, IBM uh, 360. The IBM 360 comes out, and they have an 8-bit character. And that standardizes it. Before that, there were lots of character sizes. They were all over the place. But after the 360, it pretty much, we nailed down the 8-bit byte for a long, long time, or for forever, pretty much. So once we get 8-bit bytes, we had this extra bit to figure out what to do with. Early on, they use as a parity bit just to tell whether or not this is a correct data. They also use it sometimes to just carry a little, little extra bit of data. But eventually, people start adding it as an entire new set of characters. And then nobody can agree what those characters should be. And again, in the beginning, it's not that they're fighting over it. Nobody thinks you have to come up with one single solution. It can be lots of things. Eventually, we build out, we get Unicode. Unicode has a 16-bit system that is very, very good. But who wants to go to 16-bit characters? Windows, apparently. Apparently, Windows. <laughs> and ever put on a Windows platform, you know how painful Widecar is, and it will just kill you. So we come back and we say, well, what should we do? They 32 bits actually is the correct way to encode it all. That's insane. You're never going to have four bytes per character. Yeah, it's just so much memory, yeah. And then Rob Pike comes out with the most brilliant encoding that has ever been designed, honestly, of text. Uh, UTF-8 is so ingenious that it, it should get a medal. It's very clever, especially how it works with like backwards compatibility with ASCII. And that's the key. ASCII, if you look at things throughout the world, ASCII is the grandpappy of all text encodings. 
even entirely Asian encodings, where Latin is not what you care about. You know, big, uh, whatever, shift gis, big five, you know, these are Asian encodings. They still are compatible with Vidasky. Everything is. And then UTF-8 says, and the trouble was UTF-16 said, oh, let's forget about 7-Bidaski. And it's completely incompatible. UTF-8's genius was it's 100% backward compatible. And not only that, but it's no more, I don't know, uh, doesn't take up any more space than ASCII if all you're doing is ASCII. If you're doing ASCII. But, okay, but be careful about that because it does take up more space if you're doing entirely Asian alpha, or Asian characters. Right. Yeah, it takes even more space than UTF-16 would have, in fact. I believe almost all Arabic requires three bytes. I can't remember if that's right. But many, many systems that could have gotten away with two bytes wind up being three bytes. So right. in UTF-8 compared to UTF-16, yeah. Yeah, but really, really brilliant. Swift absolutely embraces this and internally manages things as UTF-8. But for anyone who, who hasn't programmed in Swift, what you're going to find is it forces you to treat it as true UTF-8. That means the most important problem you're going to run into is you cannot index by integers. There is no O of one way to ask what is the fifth character. The only way to do it is to start and start decoding because each character could be a different length. And every single person says, well, I just want to know the eighth character. Okay, but that's O of N. And Swift intentionally makes that a little bit clunky to talk about because they don't want you to accidentally just subscript your string by eight or heaven forbid, subscript your string by, you know, a thousand and forty seven or whatever, because you don't know you're going to have to start at the beginning of the string and figure out where that character is. Yeah. And this gets into a something that I'm, I'm kind of a. Uh... I don't know if this is going to work, but something I'm trying out in Rock is just trying to just not use the term character because it's so overloaded at this point. Like some people think character and they think bite. That's character. It's like like from the C days. Or they think character and they think, oh, that's going to be a rendered glyph on the screen. Or they think, oh, you character, that's a code point. All of which are just ripe for different misunderstandings and bugs. If you have an idea in your head of what character means, and I think your example is like hits the nail on the head. A lot of people think, character and they think byte or at least direct index like that's one-to-one -one with what i'm seeing on my screen inside the string but it's like yeah you want the eighth quote-unquote character if that's byte number eight and there's an emoji between what you think of as you know like a b emoji c guess what byte number eight is not gonna be <laughs> what you think it is <laughs> you think it is and it might be right in the middle of something it might not even be on an alignment boundary right it might not even be valid unicode like what you get, you it might be, yeah, exactly. And it is an expensive operation. And most importantly, it's an O of N operation to figure out that information. So now, of course, Swift could fix this by caching, you know, when you created a string, it would keep track of all of the character offsets. But that would introduce huge memory and time costs for the times when you need it. And Swift hates that. It never does yeah, that. that doesn't seem like a reasonable solution to me either. I mean, and like I said, I, I kind of came to the conclusion that the way that Swift does it, where they say, basically, a character is not a fixed length thing. A character is an extended grapheme cluster, which basically means it's like one or more code points that go together. 
that's the smallest indivisible unit. And if you want to index based on that, no problem, but I'm going to have to scan through your string one byte at a time to find, you know, the eighth one of those because they're variable length. And I just, I, I cannot, there's no possible way to do it in O of one. And it's important to know that it's not, oh, they might be, because you might be used to the idea of a Unicode code point with UTF-8 and you go, well, it's between one and three. But with extended graphing clusters and particularly emoji uh, is the most common issue. A family emoji can be 25 bytes long. I mean, it's a single character. I mean, it's what you look at and you go, oh, that's a character. It's one, one little box, but it's 25 bytes long to encode it. And I think that's exactly where the confusion comes from, is that when you look at what's rendered on your screen, you're like, oh, well, that's one thing. It's Look, it's a, it's a glyph, right? <laughs> but yeah, but behind the scenes, it is very far from one byte like it would have been in the ASCII days. And it's like, in the old days, you had seven bits, not even an entire byte, that was uh, every single thing was reducible to, to one byte or <laughs> seven bits. And then... You know, you expand to like, oh, okay, well, now you have like a code point, which is multiple bytes, granted, but at least that's the smallest indivisible unit. But today, even that is not the smallest indivisible unit. In fact, there's no way to know, like, what's the smallest fixed length indivisible unit? There is none. They're all variable length. It's variable length all the way down. If you really want to like handle what is the smallest thing that could be rendered as one glyph on the string, it's like, I can't tell you how big that is. It's un, it's as big as, as you can think of. Well, with combining characters, unless you're in safe Unicode, safe Unicode at least puts a, a limit of 30 combining characters, but there is technically no limit. It can go on forever. Um, and this is what, if you've ever seen Zalgo text, it's just Unicode. It's totally like Unicode. There's nothing special. Glitch text, I've heard people call it. <laughs> that's what it looks like. <laughs> you can just keep adding combining characters all day long, which is a problem if you're in uh, memory-restricted spaces. Always an interesting problem when you're thinking about embedded applications. You can't. Unicode does have denial-of-service capabilities. Of somebody could overflow you your memory just by continually throwing you combining characters, which is why there is this 30 character limit or 30 combining character limit in um, safe Unicode that says, hey, there is a point in time that after this many, your buffer, if you're still getting combining characters, just reject the string. It's almost like a timeout on a web request. It's like, you know what? You get this much and after that, you're done. <laughs> and it makes sense that things like that would exist because yeah, I mean, Unicode is now capable of describing so much text and, and combining characters make a lot of sense in the sense that you know like in english it's very easy to say like why would anyone need that it's like well, okay well there's other languages and you know in some of those other languages you know you have basically you you want composition you want to be able to say like i want this letter composed with this accent mark and i don't want to have to enumerate every single different combination of those and always go do a lookup to figure out exactly which one it is i want to be able to just say no it's this letter plus this accent mark done but that's actually another great example of where swift is absolutely first in class in dealing with strings so there are multiple representations the e with the with a acute accent is a classic example in a word like cafe which by the way in english we often write with an accent mark and certainly words like resume, we stick an accent mark on them. So when we say, well, English doesn't have accent marks, well, you know, except when it... But English also steals from languages that do have accent marks. And we so... do, we bring them over. And we even have some newspaper styles include umlauts, like a word like cooperation. Actually, because it has a double O, puts a, an umlaut to indicate that both O's are, 
are pronounced. It's not common anymore, but I have seen that. Yeah, it's not common, but there are some newspapers. And again, we still consider it normal English, even though technically English doesn't have accent marks. So this is another interesting thing. Unicode has a collation rules, has set of collation rules. So for historical reasons, and every single thing in Unicode is either for emoji or historical reasons. <laughs> so for historical reasons, there is an E with acute accent has its own character. And that's because it wants to be consistent with Latin one, where it was a character. While it has its own character, it is also a uh, combining mark, right? You can have E followed by acute accent combining, illegal. You want to do string comparisons. People are typing. What do you want is, are those two things the same? And according to Unicode, they are the same. There is an explicit set of rules in Unicode that that say which kinds of things are the same as other kinds of things, and that's okay. It reminds me of um, zero and negative zero in floating point where it's like there's different bit patterns, so they're not the same in memory, but they're supposed to be semantically considered equal. And you'd better make them be the same when you when somebody does an equal. Or if you, you can't just be naive about it and do a bit check. And like imagine you're searching for like, you know, cafe or resume on your web browser, and it's like not turning up certain results that are clearly, you're looking at this right there on the page. Why are you not returning it? And it's because it's the different bit pattern under the hood. And Unicode gives you rules for what is considered an accent and therefore you can say uh, actually a diacritic i guess and you can say i would like to combine these without the diacritics so c-a-f-e with no accent marks the user probably does want to capture cafe even if we would say well that's misspelled well no you know not to a human it isn't (laughs) but now swift doesn't swift will help you with some of that but the key thing that swift will help you with is it understands that C-A-F-E with accent, or acute accent, is the same as C-A-F-E combining acute accent. Those are two different bit patterns. Like, they're two different, they're different lengths, they're different everything. But if you say in Swift, are these two strings equal? It will say they are absolutely equal. It will say that C-A-F-E, with no accents at all, is a different string. It's not just that it strips all accent marks. Which I think makes sense, because, like, clearly those are... I mean, they're, they're not the same and like Unicode doesn't consider them the same. But of course, you know, I don't personally mind like, oh, if I'm doing some search logic, you know, opting into some other function to have those like similarities. But the key is that those two strings, the, the first two strings, the, the E with a combining versus E with its own accent mark are in Swift, they're exactly equal. They're the exact same string. You can't tell the difference. They're hashed to the same value. They are equal. And in fact, this sometimes can give you a little bit of trouble because they get normalized. So if you're coming along and you're adding data bytes to a string, so you come along and you say, add C, add A, add F, add E, add combining accent, then you say, delete the last character. It will take off the E and the combining accent. So it is not a symmetric operation. Adding a data byte and deleting a character are not the same operation. Adding actually even a whole character because combining accent by itself is also a character. So adding a character and deleting a character are not symmetric. That makes sense. Although I can see how it would be surprising. (laughs) It would be very surprising. Yes. Has it been like a source of bugs that you've seen in practice? Like that specific thing? Very rarely. I find it the kind of thing if you work in really corner cases of text. Yes. 
you need to think about it, but you need to be thinking about it anyway. Right. <laughs> but for most people, no. Usually they get met, usually for the norm, the everyday programmer, it's why doesn't it just do the thing I need? Much more than I got a bug that I was surprised about. That is kind of like what it comes down to is like you have a mental model of how things are supposed to work. And very often when it comes to Unicode, what's actually going on is not quite what your mental model, you know, <laughs> would think. And for my money, I think that, you know, on the one hand, you can you can argue it's a bad user experience to say, give me the eighth character. And it's like, I can't do that in constant time or, you know, I'm not I'm not giving you the eighth byte like you expect. You can argue that's a bad user experience because it doesn't do what you expect. But what about when what you expect is going to cause bugs? Like I argue that it's better to give people a worse, you know, sort of local optimum user experience for the sake of the globally optimal, like your program doesn't have these bugs. But here's the big, the big trade-off. Similar to the arguments about strong typing, for instance, is I'm just trying to hack up a little script. Why are you bugging me with every wacky corner case of yes, 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 if I were making production, you know, production code, I should do that, but I just want to get this kind of vaguely working. And Swift will kind of fight you on that. It, it's why I'm not particularly a big fan of it as a scripting language, because you can't slap things together. You need to think about all the corner cases up front. On the other hand, it, that makes it a lot more solid when it's time to not be a hacked together script. Yeah, I understand that perspective. Like that is something. So we just did Advent of Code. And one of the things that I kind of was confronted with is like, I actually would like Rock to be useful as a scripting language. It's not optimized for that. That's not like the main thing that it's for. But something that I've always wanted is a language where it feels nice enough to use as a scripting language that I don't feel the need to like switch languages when that's like my main daily driver and like go do something else. And so we've got stuff like we made sure that like the, you know, the hash bang at the top works so you can just like set market as executable and run it and stuff like that. But this did come up where people were pointing out like, Hey, you're making me jump through hoops that I, you know, I appreciate you putting those checks there and, you know, making it so that I must be confronted with them and cannot forget to handle them in a robust production app. But this is advent of code. I don't care. I just want to solve the puzzle, you know? And yeah, there's definitely an innate tension there sometimes where it's like, yeah, I mean, if you want to make, if you want to make the one case better, you got to make the other case worse. One of the tactics I've seen some APIs do this is not what I'm going with in rock, but it's basically just with like discourage things with names, like make it be like unsafe, probably wrong, you know, access string at byte index, <laughs> something like that. So I will say Rust, for instance, I mean, use of the word unsafe, but Swift uses it. Rust has the same kind of concept where you mark things with this word, but the word has a highly technical meaning. In fact, one of the problems with the word unsafe is that in those kinds of languages, is it means a very technical thing. It doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't even mean it's unsafe. It means all the problems of figuring out if it's safe are up to you. We're not going to check it for you. It doesn't, if Rust is actually probably the biggest place that this is a problem. People assume, oh, once I go into unsafe Rust, I can do anything. No, you can do no more things than you can do in safe Rust. It's just your problem to make sure that they're true. You don't get any new powers. The good example of this is like you mentioned that like, you know, we're not going to check it for you. That's actually a really common word that you'll see in the names of like functions in Rust is unchecked. It'll be like unchecked, like actually speaking of strings, there's like an unchecked convert from raw bytes to UTF-8, meaning 
I assume that you have at some other point verified that this is valid UTF-8. If you didn't, your program could do anything. So good luck with that. But I'm not going to check it for you. I'm just going to assume it's correct. Well, so that's good. I dislike, I have seen programs, particularly SDKs, that will have, oh gosh, there was one when you used ECB encryption with for AES. It just wanted you to type out ECB insecure. I have read the docs and I am a bad programmer, you know, constant. <laughs> and that doesn't solve anything because people just cut and paste it and move on with their lives. The one that comes to mind uh, for me is in React.js. Uh, they, at some point, I don't know if this is still true, but at some point they had a variable called secret DOM, do not use or you will be fired. <laughs> <laughs> And what was funny is that actually like someone opened an issue, which it's hard to tell if they were trolling because they actually kind of seemed to be serious, but maybe they were just doing a really good job trolling. And they were like, can I use this for my project? Like dead, you know, deadpan, like, is it safe to use in my project? And you know, one of the maintainers was like, no, that's why we named it that. Don't use it. <laughs> if you really weren't supposed to use it, it wouldn't exist. It's like, obviously there is some case it was a necessary thing. I assume that it was something to do with, I don't remember the backstory of this particular one, but it's like, it's probably for like testing or there's some like, you know, weird scenario where they need it to be there. But no, I don't like, I don't like judgmental names that are trying to like shame you into not using it. Mainly because I found they never work. People literally, if you make the name ridiculously long, people just copy it or they put a constant that equals it so they can type it quicker. But names that have very clear meanings of rules that are saying this is unchecked, so therefore it's up to you to make sure that it's right. Or it's unsafe in that if you don't carefully read the documentation, you may create undefined behavior. Now, I actually, I will say, so generally speaking, people, I agree, like people will feel free to use, it's Hiram's law, right? If, if you make something that people can depend on, they will depend on it. But there is one that I'm surprised because the name is like, it's try, clearly trying to discourage you, but it actually just sounds like so intriguing and fun that it makes me want to try it, which is so Haskell, you know, is famously a pure functional programming language, no side effects. But there is one function that everybody knows of, about that that you can use to perform arbitrary side effects in Haskell, and it's called unsafe perform IO. But what is less known than that is there's another one that's even more extreme, which is called Accursed Unutterable Perform IO. <laughs> I actually, I personally don't know anyone who's actually tried to use that. I know people who've done Unsafe Perform IO, but I don't know anyone who has actually legit tried to use Accursed Unutterable Perform IO, even though the name sounds so intriguing. Like, I just like I want to find a use for that, right? Surely I need that, right? I need that in my life. <laughs> How much geek cred do you get if you found a legit use case? You're like, no, my production system depended on using a cursed unutterable perform IO, and otherwise it would have been a disaster, <laughs> right? <laughs> and yet somehow people don't use it <laughs> from what I've seen. I will say, though, those kinds of things that have a certain feel of being very uh, low level. One thing that's impressed me again with Swift compared to other languages, I, I, I worked in Scala for a while. And one thing that, I, that really struck me about Scala was how much the standard library didn't really feel like normal Scala. It did all kinds of things that you would say, oh, never do that. Never do that. Oh, really? Huh. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, in terms of mutation and other things, because you had to do this for performance. 
there's a little bit of that in Go as well. While I think the Go standard lib is one of the greatest standard libs ever written, internally it does often do things that are contrary to what received wisdom is. Okay, so so now is this, are we talking like internal implementation details or like public API? No, 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 okay. no. I'm talking about how it's written. Like you go and look at the port code, does it look like normal? Now, there's a certain argument that, well, I guess the low-level things can't look like high-level things. But I tell you, if you go look at the Swift standard lib, it isn't that far. It has this and that like extra at underscore attribute thing, you know, that indicate things for the optimizer. But most of the code is what you would have written if you were just writing it. That's impressed me. I think that you get a lot of help if you have a really good optimizer, which like Swift has LLVM. So like in Rock, we've been moving in that direction. Like when we first started out, a lot of the standard library was implemented in just like, actually literally LLVM assembly, like IR directly. Like it was like, we were just writing hand-coded like LLVM instructions for like standard library stuff. Later on, we got into Zig and now we actually have like, actually, it took a lot of like build configuration to get it so that we could write rock code for the standard library for rock because there's a little bit of a circular, you know, dependency kind of a thing there. But we did get it working. And I say we, it was all Folkert. So shout out to him for, <laughs> for making that happen. But what we found was that actually in a lot of cases, because rock is designed to be very low overhead and yada, yada, that we were able to, on a case-by-case basis, go and say, okay, we have this thing that's kind of like hard-coded in a lower-level language. What happens if we rewrite it in plain rock the way we would normally write it? What does it actually compile to compared to the hand-optimized one? And in a lot of cases, we're like, oh, it's the same. Cool. We can just move it into pure rock and everybody wins. So what we've been moving towards is having a very small number of like low-level primitives that are kind of like not... I don't know, like irreducible. Like, for example, we have the like sort of mutate, like unsafely get access to a certain element in a list or like an array without checking it. Cause that's like memory unsafe, right? It's like, it's like a pointer offset. Like, just, just go read at this memory address. And then the implementation is basically like, okay, do a bounds check in rock. And then if the bounds check succeeds, then do the unsafe thing. And then otherwise, so we don't expose the unsafe thing because we're not, not trying to like rock has a guarantee of like being a memory safe language so we don't like you do like direct point arithmetic but we can get it all the way down to like there's this kind of opaque you know memory read thing that only the like list module gets to actually access but from that point it then feels like okay this looks like pretty normal rock code when you look at the like list.get implementation it's like yeah it does a bounce check and then it does this other thing okay cool <laughs> well and very i mean even i mean swift i don't want to underestimate i mean if you talk about the low level thing like array array is not uh, just a bag of bytes in swift it is a very complicated structure, and it is not obvious how it works. If you and sometimes it gets some help from directly from the compiler. It's mostly you go up a step. A method like map is almost exactly the for loop you would have written, except that they remembered to pre-allocate the array, the resulting array, with the target amount, and that gives you a lot more performance, right? Because it already knows. I mean, a map is always a the same size to the same size. So you're certain you can just pre-allocate and it'll be correct. And if you just write the for loop, this is something I, I used to teach people, you think you could just write the for loop and it would be faster. And it's like somehow the map is faster than your for loop. It's because the map remembered this one other little detail that's totally normal Swift code, but you forgot. I also don't know if how that works in Swift in particular, but another th- very small detail there is like if the way that you were building it up is by doing like a push, 
like onto the new array, then you also have to have every single time you do a push, it has to do like a bounds check to see if you're like, you know, exceeding the length, you need to reallocate. But if you've preallocated, you don't have to bother doing those checks. So yeah, little things like that. And that you could have, I think the beautiful thing is, if you could have written it, idiomatic form of the language yourself, at the user level, then that's awesome. So I think maybe, and I, again, have not really written any significant Go programs ever, but my guess would be that if Go is doing something other than that, probably there's something along the lines of like, I mean, Go doesn't have LLVM like as an optimization. So maybe it's like they're they're getting optimizations that they can't automatically get from compiling Go. It's more a little higher level. The low level stuff in Go is actually quite idiomatic Go. It's, it's quite, it's totally fine. And, and actually I point people to the Go Standard Lab is a way to learn how to write Go. It's mostly in their parallel. If you're dealing things, there's often this, thou shalt use channels in Go. It's like, that's the right way to do it. And then the moment you go write channels, all the experienced Go programmers will go, why are you using channels? You should just use mutexes. And all the documentation says, stop using mutexes. You should use channels. And then you go into any of the you know low-level libraries, it's all mutexes. Which, although I will say, in the Swift world, you're constantly told thou, you know, don't stop doing locks. We have async await now. Absolutely, you don't need semaphores. So then you go to Apple's own source code for their async algorithms, which are the they're not in the standard lib yet, but they're targeted for the standard lib. This is kind of a, a playground for folks to work on things that they don't want to nail down the interface for. It's all filled with semaphores. <laughs> and I always ask the folks who work on it, it's like, okay, how am I supposed to write? Say I was writing async channel. How should I build it when I'm told, don't use semaphores? And they're like, they don't answer me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I guess the answer would be like, well, since that already exists, you shouldn't need to. Yeah, use my stuff and then it'll be fine. And the truth is it's because a lot of those are hard to use correctly. And therefore it's like, we're more experts and we're going to look at it very carefully and make sure it's right. And I get it, but... It's always frustrating. <laughs> yeah, I can appreciate that. And, and, and you know, kind of getting back to the Unicode thing, there's there's an element of like, what do you want to tell people who don't plan to become experts in the thing? Like, it, you know, a lot of people just don't have any interest in becoming a Unicode expert. They're just like, I just want to do string stuff. I, I see the stuff on my screen and I know conceptually what I want to do. Just help me do the thing that I want to do. <laughs> and when there's strings, and one of the things is, even when their strings are you know, hundreds of characters long, even a thousand characters long. Say they have a text field and you can enter some small amount of text. The truth is, if we gave them an integer subscript that was O of N, so it, and then they do loops on it, so we now have an O of N squared algorithm, and it suddenly turns, it means there's a million things on a thousand element thing. Yeah, computers are fast. It's probably fine. They really, really wouldn't, they would barely notice It'll be within a frame. They'll be able to animate at speed. And honestly, it'll never matter. Hey, granted, that does depend on like what else is going on. You know, it's like maybe they're doing some really heavy CPU stuff also. Yeah. And so it was a thousand and then it's a 5,000 and suddenly it's a problem. And that's the trouble is that we're saving you from as your program grows. But how do you feel in the early days? And then again, there's, there's also that question of like, what are you more likely to run into a performance problem or a bug? Because, you know, of designing, you know, one way or the other, not to mention, like, what if you think you're getting great performance, but what you're actually getting is just deferred bugs. And then later on, when you discover these bugs, because somebody finally for the first time uses an emoji in your text application, and then you discover, oh, 
how do I fix this? It's like, well, you need to go to the O of N version. And you're like, oh, but now my performance doesn't work and everyone's relying on that level of performance. It's like, well, sorry, uh, you're just stuck with these bugs forever. I guess disallow emoji somehow. Like, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> that it's very inc- that suddenly you have to rewrite everything. Right, because it's like there just isn't a better way to... I mean, like you said, you could cache all the locations ahead of time, but it's not guaranteed that that's going to improve performance because there's a lot of memory involved in that and certainly enough to cause memory cache misses. So... There's no easy answers there, but I do appreciate the like sort of pit of success design of Swift where it's like, at least you're going to be confronted with the realization that this is actually a slow operation as opposed to being confronted with bugs. And Swift is very much trying to encourage you not to do subscripting into collections anyway, with arbitrary integers. One of the problems is the most common collection is an array, and the array is in fact a weird collection. In Swift. I've heard that, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I thought it had something to do with Objective-C backwards compatibility is like part of why Array is weird. Maybe that's wrong. No, it's not because of the compatibility. I mean, there are weird things about the fact that there is this compatibility, but they're kind of, they're, they're low level. Arrays are subscriptable by integers. That's bizarre. Almost no collections are subscriptable by integers in Swift. They're almost always subscriptable by a bespoke index that is per collection. Sets have a set index. Dictionaries have a dictionary index. Like, And you can't create them. They're kind of private internal implementation details. It is very, very unusual for a string. And, and strings, again, strings have a string index. Everything has, a, has its own magical private index that can be used to, that it returns to you, like, where is the first time this is found? And then you can take that index and hand it back to the collection to find it again. Arrays are almost unique in the whole system that they allow you to t- use an integer, a thing. And most importantly, they allow you to use a thing you just made up. Like you didn't have to ask the array for it. You almost never can do that. And so people are used to the idea that arrays work a certain... And I actually asked in the early days, is like, why do arrays even work this way when it's so alien to everything else? For instance, why when you index an array by an integer, why do you get a concrete element and crash if it's out of bounds. Most collections would return an optional. Like if you use a dictionary, it'll return an optional, right? It won't crash if you ask for something that doesn't exist. And the answer was because everybody expects arrays to be indexable by integers and people would be very angry at Swift if you couldn't. What did the same thing about Rust? Because in Rust, granted, you don't have the same like index as a separate type, but it's it's definitely true. Like in Rust, you can do a subscript of an integer and it will just panic if it's not there. But everywhere else, you do like a dot get or a you know dot whatever, it'll always return like an option or a result or something like that. And I guess I think that's just the answer. It's just like someone says, I want first element equals array bracket zero. Why can I not do that? <laughs> Which is why. There, the other bizarre collection in Swift is data, which bridges over from Objective-C, kind of. And data looks like an array in the, of an array of bytes, kind of acts like one. And you can subscript it by integers. But if you make a slice of it, you get back a thing that is also a data. Slices in Swift are correctly implemented. It's, a, it's the correct way to do slices. When you slice a collection, the new collection's first index is the index you started the slice at. It is not zero. It's just whatever it was. Well, that means that if you slice a data and pull out the bytes 8 through 12, the index of the first byte is 8. So then you say my slice bracket zero, 
and it crashes because it's out of range. There is no byte zero. The first byte is eight. It's another case where Swift is pedantically correct. Every single step of this was correct. But the final thing you get is maddening because you say, I want the first byte. It should be zero. The fourth byte should be three, you know, because we're computer people. We can't count, but still. And you crash. <laughs> it's like, why does it work like this? So I've never heard of slices working that way in any language. I'm, I'm curious, what do you know what motivated that? I mean, the only thing I can think of is it's more efficient because you don't have to do any offset arithmetic. You just like directly add whatever the index is to the original pointer and it gives you exactly the address. Is it a performance thing? Or? No, it's not about pointers. You, It's a, since the slice, it's a projection of the original. Oh, I just mean like under the hood. Like eventually it's going to be adding something to an address. So like- Not if, necessarily. Swift doesn't require anything like that. I mean, it doesn't erase, but most collections aren't implemented as that kind of offset. But I mean, like the machine code, right? Like what it's compiling to. Ultimately, if you have a slice, it's going to have to like, there's some memory address and you say like, give me the, you know, byte number eight. And it's going to be like, okay, I will add eight to this address. Not in collections. Dictionaries are a collection, right? But they're actually implemented as a hash map. The seventh element of the dictionary is not necessarily memory. There's no memory you think the eighth element of the dictionary may not be the next element at all. I meant bytes specifically, or, or like data, I guess. But Swift doesn't think of it that way at all. It very much is tied to the abstract collection interface. Uh, so like regardless of implementation, it's like you should be thinking of it in terms of... Uh -huh. Yes, and it's very important because underneath the covers, for instance, even with a data, so a data is kind of a bag of bytes, Right. So you would think that the ninth byte would be one more than the eighth byte, would be in a memory location, one more than the eighth byte. That is, in, it is not, pro it not only is it not promised, it happens all the time that it is not because a data can be a front for a, what's called a dispatch data. A dispatch data is a low level immutable data object that Swift, or excuse me, not Swift, the Apple ecosystem has had for many, many years. A dispatch datas are immutable and can be combined any way you like. You can concatenate them two datas together without doing any copying. And so you create a new data that says, okay, my first 20 bytes are here, my next 20 bytes are here, my next 20 bytes are over here, and I own all these memory blocks. They're called regions. And all these regions that are not contiguous are all conceptually part of this array. And so it is very, very easy then to say, I want the 80th byte. Well, it looks up in its little tiny lookup table. This is, oh, that's my 12th region, fourth byte. And can hand it to you super fast. No copies, no, it's very, very, very performant. And data hides it from you. You don't know under the covers what data's backing store is. I had no idea that they, they have that feature. That's pretty cool. Arrays are like this too. I mean, objective. So Swift arrays can back. Normally, they are a vector. They're like a C plus plus vector. But if they have a Objective C backend, they might be an NS array. NS arrays can be anything and can change themselves at runtime. They're they're backing implementation depending on their size. That's why an NS array or NS mutable array, so you can mutate it. Maybe it is in many cases O of one to prepend because it might be implemented in such a way that that's okay. And in fact, it tries to figure out what you, I mean, how it actually does it is winds up being very heuristic intense, but <laughs> it, based on different sizes, 
can be wildly fast. I had a whole big uh, Stack Overflow question. Somebody asked, why is NS Array so slow? And I said, compare, like, because appending to an NS mutable array is much, much slower than appending to a C++ vector. And I was like, well, it's slow if that's the absolutely only thing you're going to do. But if you're going to do other things, like insert in the middle or insert at the beginning, NS arrays are super fast compared to everybody else. And we have to pick this up where array is, in fact, an abstract interface that could be lots of things under the covers. So going back to dictionaries, is that you can say, give me the like fifth element in this dictionary. So does that mean the dictionaries are ordered or? Well, you can't really. I mean, you can ask for the first element and then you can say advance that by four. Huh. What's the difference? I mean, you can't, there is no index. There is no integer. The number five never appears. They're unordered, but you say, give me the first one. It's like, sure, I'll give you whatever the first one turned out to be based on the hashing. But it will be equivalent. I mean, excuse me, it will be consistent as long as you don't mutate the dictionary. Now, once you mutate the dictionary, everything's out the window. But it means that you can treat a dictionary as an enumeration. It means you can walk over it if you wanted to as a set of key value pairs. Which is pretty common. But collection, I mean, every all kinds of things can be collections. Lazy things can be, so lazy maps are just collections. Anytime you access a particular index, it may have to run a whole function to figure out its value. And it doesn't cache it. It doesn't cache it? No. Huh. So be careful. <laughs> yeah, interesting. So that's basically just like, it's almost like a, it's a, a function call that's sort of masquerading as a data structure. 100%. And it now it does by convention. Well, not convention. I mean, the rules, they're not enforced in any way. But I mean, the rules of collection say that that subscript needs to be O of one. But remember, a thing that takes a year is O of one. O of one doesn't mean fast. As long as it doesn't take a year times whatever. Yeah, as long as it's not proportional to size, it can be as slow as you want. So the fact that it has to run the entire function again does not violate an O of one promise. Very cool. We've been talking for a while about a bunch of different stuff. Is there anything else we should make sure to talk about on this topic? Nah, Swift is cool, but it's uh, part of a school. I I am so excited that we are in a golden age of programming languages. You mentioned Zig. Gosh, I mean, Zig gets me so excited. It is a great language. I am so glad that you're building languages. I am so thrilled to see people building brilliant languages that are exploring new things. They're not just slapped together ideas. They're, people are really thinking about the problems and they're learning from each other. I agree. It's it's definitely like a very exciting time to be like someone who likes languages because when I look back at like, I don't know, the past like 20 years, like obviously like 1995 was this like wild year of like languages that went on to be extremely <laughs> like Java, JavaScript, and Ruby. I think and PHP maybe all came out in 95. PHP it might have been 94. Right about, right about. But I mean, definitely like Python and Haskell were like, you know, 90 and 92. I mean, that five-year stretch was just totally bonkers but then it seemed like for a long time it's like it was just it slowed down to a trickle you know you got like go and rust and swift and kotlin dart coffee script but but like you know that's that's over like the next you know 20 ish years and so it's cool to see that like yeah now we're, we're at a time where like there's more of that picking up it feels like it's hard to like imagine what the future will look back on this time period as but if, if they do look back on it as a golden age like cool i'm, I'm happy to I think so. and again that this is like the renaissance 
where people were swapping knowledge all the time. I mean, that's what really was the power of it. And also the power of, you know, a Xerox Park, Bell Labs, that you had all of these people coming together and swapping knowledge. So when I watch the Swift team, they are deeply aware of Rust. And I talked to the Rust team and they are deeply aware of Swift. And they are playing around with this stuff and going, oh, wait, we could, how does that apply to us? They're not copying. There's a certain amount of just copying stuff. And the fact that Kotlin and Swift look so much alike, you know, well, sure. I mean, they, they kind of all borrowed from the same folks. and But it's not a surprise that, you know, Akka developers are now in Swift, right? And we have folks coming over from all of these different languages and bringing a lot of expertise. We're not reinventing the wheel. We're bringing the wheel over and making it better. I can think of... Uh like three different programming languages that are direct descendants of Elm alone. It's very cool to see all the like innovation that's happening and like, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants and like trying to, you know, like build even more cool stuff on top of the cool stuff that, that, that only recently came into existence itself. Absolutely. Absolutely. Awesome. Rob, thank you so much. This has been a great talk and we'll have to do this again sometime. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you. All right. All right.